from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes Olam. This week, Noah. With the Hagim behind us, now is a great time to start planning to attend the Pardes Learning Seminar, either this coming winter, December 29th through January 2nd, or if you like to plan ahead, next summer, June 28th through July 2nd. Details about the program are available on our website now, pardes.org.il. I guarantee that you'll have a terrific time. The seminar is open to everyone of all ages who's interested in learning from the master teachers at Pardes in Jerusalem. Please join us. This week, Noah with Rabbi Michael Hatton. Rabbi Michael Hatton is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Michael Hatton. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with the Lord. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephet. The earth was corrupted before the Lord, and the earth was filled with violence. The Lord saw that the earth had become corrupted, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. The Lord said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence on their account and I will destroy them from upon the earth. Prepare for yourself an ark. Just a short week ago, we read of God's creation of the cosmos, ex nihilo, out of nothing. We read the awesome potential that attended his fashioning of the first human beings. We read about the Garden of Eden, with its verdant and lush foliage, planted by God especially for their pleasure. And we read of the terrible failure of Adam and Chava, to fulfill the divine command and to refrain from eating the fruit of the mysterious tree of knowledge. In the aftermath of that impulsive deed, the two, suddenly aware for the first time of the implications of their nakedness, were banished from Eden and were prevented from approaching its protected gates. The moral state of humanity continued its downward spiral when Cain killed his brother Hevel, when Tuval Cain fabricated the first lethal weapons of bronze and iron, and when idolatry entered the human lexicon during the days of Enosh. The Parsha wound down with more acts of infamy and excess, with leaders and judges who failed to wield their power wisely, using it instead to advance their own covetous plots. By Parshat Bereshit's sorry conclusion, God had regretted ever having made humanity, and he resolved not to suffer much longer their incorrigible ways. And in the absence of any moral progress by that generation, only one man, his wife and his children, and their wives, were to be preserved, righteous Noah. Our Parsha opens with God bidding Noah to build an ark of fantastic proportions, as he indicates to him that a great flood will soon wash over the face of the earth to cleanse it entirely of man's corruption and violence. Noah, in utter and complete contrast to his compatriots, fulfills all that God had commanded him. In the end, God calls upon him and his family to board the vessel as they bring into it representatives of all of the other species. Everything else that inhabits the terrestrial plane is swept away. Only those that are on the ark, anxiously bobbing upon the foamy deep, are saved from oblivion. A full year passes from the time that the rains begin to fall, until Noah and all of those aboard his cavernous vessel can finally disembark. 
As the waters begin to subside and the mountain tops are exposed, the ark touches down upon the slopes of Mount Ararat. But it takes additional time for the waters to completely drain and for the surface of the earth to dry. Expectantly, Noah sends first the raven and then the dove in order to ascertain the outside conditions until finally the moment arrives. God spoke to Noah saying, Leave the ark, your wife, your sons, and their wives with you, all of the living creatures that are with you from all manner of flesh, birds, animals, and creeping things that creep upon the earth, cause them to go out with you, so that they may swarm upon the earth and multiply exceedingly upon it. Full of gratitude, Noah disembarks, builds an altar, and offers sacrifice. And God resolves never to destroy all of humanity again. Turning to Noah and to his children, God now blesses them in a section reminiscent of his optimistic charge to the first human beings at the time of their creation. God blessed Noah and his children, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Fear of you and dread will be upon all of the animals of the earth and upon all of the birds of the sky. Everything that creeps upon the ground as well as the fish of the sea are given into your hand. Any creature that lives shall be your food, for I have given you all of them without restraint, as freely as the plant vegetation. Nevertheless, do not consume the flesh of a creature while it is still alive. Moreover, I will require of you an accounting of your blood, that is your soul. From every beast I will require an accounting. And from humanity, even from a man's own brother, will I require an accounting of the soul of the person. He that sheds the blood of a person shall have his own blood shed by other people, for man was created in God's image. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm upon the earth and increase. But the world, and with it God's expectations of humanity, are now changed. No longer is it filled with pure promise. No more does God anticipate man to necessarily exercise a profound moral sensitivity towards all creatures. From this point onwards, human beings need no longer to abstain from the consumption of other living things, as had been the case in the Garden of Eden, but only from the cruel and wanton taking of their lives. Animals may be eaten, but they may not be eaten alive. What had been so obvious in an earlier and more innocent age, that bloodshed is wrong and that human life is inviolate, here must be emphatically spelled out. Significantly, our ancient rabbis actually understood that Noah and his children are now given by God seven fundamental principles that are to govern their lives and the lives of all people after them. These things, known in rabbinic literature as the seven Noahide commands, are regarded by our tradition as the basic building blocks of any functioning moral society. They are given to Noah and to his children as they stand before God on the cusp of a new and hopeful era of human history. They are succinctly spelled out by the rabbis in Talmud Bavli Tractate Sanhedrin 59a. The seven principles are the following. Number one, the directive to establish a judiciary. Number two, the prohibition of blasphemy. Number three, the prohibition of idolatry. Number four, the prohibition of adultery and incest. Number five, the prohibition of murder. Number six, the prohibition of theft. And number seven, the prohibition.
prohibition of consuming the flesh of a limb torn from a living creature. Most curiously, these seven laws that are taken to constitute the touchstone of the new world order are not explicitly enumerated in our passage from above. The prohibition of consuming a creature alive as well as the proscription of killing a human being are spelled out, but the five remaining provisions are glaringly omitted. The text in chapter 9 of Genesis said, Do not consume the flesh of a creature while it is still alive. He that sheds the blood of a person shall have his own blood shed by other people, for man was created in God's image. While Rabbi Yochanan goes on in the Talmudic passage above, to furnish a source for all of the seven Noahide laws, his attempt seems at first glance to be forced and unsatisfying. From whence are these seven things derived? Said Rabbi Yochanan, the text states in Genesis chapter 2 that God Lord commanded the earthling saying, you may surely eat from all of the trees of the garden. Rabbi Yochanan explains, the words he commanded refer to providing for a judiciary. As the verse states, I know him that he will command his descendants and his household after him to observe the ways of God, to do that which is righteous and just. The word God refers to the prohibition of blasphemy. As the verse elsewhere states, he that blasphemes the name of God shall surely be put to death. The word Lord Elohim refers to the prohibition of idolatry. As the verse states, you shall not have other gods, Elohim, before me. The word the earthling Ha'adam refers to the prohibition of murder, as the verse states, He that sheds the blood of a person, Ha'adam, shall have his own blood shed by other people. The word saying refers to the prohibition of adultery and incest, as the verse states in Jeremiah, saying, Behold, if a man sends forth his wife, and she becomes married to another man, shall she then return to her, her first husband? The words from all of the trees of the garden imply the prohibition of theft. The words, you shall surely eat, refer to the prohibition of eating a limb torn from a living creature. Essentially, Rabbi Yochanan introduces two complementary ideas by connecting the source of the seven Noahide principles to an earlier verse in last week's Parsha. First of all, in so, in so doing, he acknowledges and actually reinforces our earlier question. Why is it that our own passage in Parshat Noah? in which God addresses Noah and his sons as they exit the ark and stand to repopulate the earth, fails to mention the majority of these other laws. If these are in fact Noahide laws, then we should have rightly expected them to be mentioned here and now, in this passage of divine expectation and earthly renewal. The kind of exegetical acrobatics that Rabbi Yochanan employs to extract the seven principles from that verse in Parshat Bereshit could have been employed equally successfully in our own passage as well in order to yield a similar result. Second of all, and this is the crux of the matter, Rabbi Yochanan deliberately chooses to extract the seven Noahide laws from Bereshit chapter 2 verse 16 and not from our Parsha because it is this earlier verse that constitutes the very first command between God and humanity. The verse in question, it will be recalled, is the one in which God prohibits the first human beings from consuming the fruit of the tree of knowledge. In its entirety, the passage reads as follows, God, Lord, commanded the earthling, saying, 
You may surely eat from all of the trees of the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. The intertwined elements of this decisive encounter between God and humanity may be described as follows. There is an imperative, that is an emphatic statement of God's authority, as well as a prohibition, that is an emphatic statement of humanity's self-limitation. God pronounces a command that, by definition, defines the boundaries of human autonomy. While we are given dominion over all other creatures, our power is invested in us from above. We are therefore subjects in turn of a higher sovereign. At the same time, God's proscription imposes a limit upon our conduct. We cannot act with impunity in the world, refusing to acknowledge any limitations upon our behavior, because to do so is to undermine any possibility of a morally developed life. The exercise of the moral will is by definition an act of self-limitation. For when a person chooses a moral response in a given situation, it is almost always at the expense of his or her own interest. When I acknowledge and respond to the needs of another person, or else to the inviability of their person or their possessions, I must in the process impose a limit upon my own behavior. Desisting from killing, adultery or theft, refusing to perpetrate cruelty upon lower creatures even while I may consume them, are all expressions, great and small, of self-limitation. Whenever I choose the moral path, I must exercise some degree of self-control. In effect, Rabbi Yochanan provides us with the ultimate axiological source for the Noahide laws. For in that very first prohibition pronounced upon human beings, which is the prohibition to consume the fruit of the tree of knowledge, is contained the essence of the moral choice. When I activate my moral choice, God's supremacy is acknowledged. My own need to exercise self-control is established. These are the two fundamental parameters of morality. Every transcendent and more and binding moral system must, in the end, be founded upon them. Truthfully, Rabbi Yochanan's exegetics in this case are not to be taken literally as if the seven Noahide principles are actually derived from the words of the verse in question. What is derived from the verse is the essence of the moral system, the axis around which all else revolves. The seven Noahide laws could no doubt have been textually derived from our own Parsha, but Rabbi Yochanan prefers to see their inception occurring at the very dawn of the God-human relationship to highlight their self-evident as well as their indispensable nature. Isn't it obvious that these seven principles must form the bedrock, bedrock of any morally functioning society? Isn't it obvious that killing, adultery, theft, and the rest are wrong? But if there is no explicit mention of most of the seven things in our own Parsha, and Rabbi Yochanan's derivation is didactic rather than literal, then where are these seven things actually stated in the Torah? Surely the laws that our tradition maintains are binding upon all of humanity must be spelled out in the Torah somewhere. The answer, in fact, is to be found in last week's Parsha after all. 
but not in the specific verse cited by Rabbi Yochanan as the textual and technical source. Remember, Parshat Breshit began with great promise and potential, but it quickly degenerated into a sorry tale of human hubris and corruption. After the unceremonious banishment of Adam and Chava from the Garden of Eden, humanity set to work in earnest to destroy the world. Cain became jealous of his brother Hevel and killed him in cold blood. Chapter 4, verse 8. In the days of Enosh, a scant two generations after Adam and Chava, people began to desecrate the name of God. Chapter 4, verse 26. Which can certainly be understood to include both idolatry as well as blasphemy. As humanity began to multiply and daughters were born to them, the Bnei Elohim saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took women from all that they chose. God said, My spirit shall not be eternally vexed on account of humanity who is but flesh. Chapter 6, verses 2 to 3. While the above verses are somewhat cryptic, there is a clear linkage between the taking of the women and the divine disapproval that immediately follows, providing more than circumstantial evidence that some sort of sexual immorality was at play. Did these powerful men, these Bnei Elohim, perhaps take the women by force? If the Bnei Elohim were in fact judges, as Rashi explains, then a corruption of the judiciary, judiciary would also be implied. Finally, as the flood loomed and Noah was singled out for preservation, the Torah describes the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Chapter 6 verse 11 states, The earth was corrupt before the Lord and the earth was filled with violence. Many of the commentaries understood this violence to refer specifically to robbery and theft. In other words, the narrative of the Torah itself in its description of the undoing of human civilization before the, flood, before the flood, clearly tells us what kind of problems and moral failures doomed humanity to near extinction. The flood was not a capricious storm, an arbitrary tsunami of epic proportions. The flood was a divine response to the moral corruption of humanity, to his predilection for violence, his unwillingness to exercise self-control, his refu refusal to acknowledge the needs and the rights of the others around him. The flood was mandated to clean the world of its evil to wash away the stain of man's inhumanity to man. It was precisely the abrogation of the Noahide principles that precipitated the downpour. All that is missing, in fact, from our list of infamy, infamy on the eve of the flood is the tearing and consumption of a limb from a living animal. We might surmise if people treated others with disdain, then their treatment of the animals was probably no better. And the lack of an explicit reference to this infraction in the list of pre-flood moral failures now is not unusual. Is this perhaps the reason why it is precisely this particular law that is spelled out to Noah and to his children? As if to say that since it had not been mentioned earlier, it must therefore be stated now, Any creature that lives shall be your food, for I have given you all of them without restraint, as freely as the plant vegetation. Nevertheless, do not consume the flesh of a creature while it is still alive. The lessons of the flood are crucial and profound. 
In its aftermath, our tradition formulates seven foundation ideas that are regarded as absolutely the bedrock of moral human interactions with each other, with the wider community, and with other creatures, and with God. In civilizations in which these seven things are consistently abrogated, moral decay and eventual downfall must follow, as Noah and his children disembark and prepare to begin rebuilding the world, God reminds them that not only infrastructure, industry, and the economy must be revitalized. There is something even more critical to the survival and the success of human civilization, and that is the moral law. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Hatton. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.